Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here with us to worship the Lord. Thanks for giving time to be with God's people this morning. Uh, As Kevin said this morning, we are beginning a new series uh, just for three weeks. You know, normally we uh, preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, uh, but this week we are starting a three-week series called Image Bearers. Um, And like Kevin said, if you don't no, this, this Sunday, today, is uh, known as Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Um, and maybe you don't know this fact either. Uh, Fifty years ago to the day, the, the ruling of Roe versus Wade was handed down from the Supreme Court in 1973. And since that day, the church has taken uh, this day every year to um, pray for, to be engaged with, um, and to uh, think about uh, the cause of life in our country. Uh, As you probably know, this decision was also overruled uh, six months ago, which has led to all sorts of cultural conversations about life, and as well as lots of opportunities for the church to make new strides in promoting and upholding uh, the cause of life. But as we as pastors were thinking and praying about how to approach today, uh, in light of everything that's happened over the past year, we thought it would be worthwhile to actually step aside uh, from the normal kind of preaching rhythms and to look at how the church can understand stand and engage with the cause for life in a comprehensive way. Um, And biblically, this idea is all grounded in a a theological phrase, uh, the imago dei, or the image of God that we bear. Uh, And so what we're going to do over these three weeks is we're going to take the spotlight of that doctrine, and and I'll explain it here in a second, and we're going to shine it into the darkness and confusion of our culture in three particular areas. This week, we're we're looking at life and abortion and the crisis of abortion in our culture. Next week, we're going to be looking about bringing justice to those who are marginalized in our culture. And then the following week, on February 5th, we'll be talking about gender and sexuality. Now, before we get into it in earnest, um, I wanted to just prepare hearts for a minute, prepare our hearts for this, okay? There's stuff over the coming weeks that might upset you. There's things that might uh, trigger you, so to speak. These are heavy topics that might challenge your heart, and it's going to be hard for us because we live in this culture, okay? All of these topics are going to be relevant to our lives, and they're going to impact the way that we live, and and I, I want to say up front that my intention is that I would bring ideologies into question and into challenge that exist in our culture, but the last thing I ever want to do is attack people, Wouldn't that be ironic? Wouldn't that be like, we're going to preach about how we all bear the image of God and have dignity and worth and respect, and you walk out of here just feeling attacked every week? Um, That's not the heart, okay? That's not the goal. Um, But sometimes that's a hard line, right? Because we, we hold our ideas so close. Our ideas, especially those ideas about who we are, the nature of who we are, can, can be linked to our identity or feel like it, at least. And so when somebody starts to talk or question that idea, it can feel like they're talking about or questioning or attacking you. Okay, so my aim, I just want to say it up front, my aim over these weeks is to speak truth, biblical truth as clearly as I can, but to do it with a heart of compassion and care, knowing that these are real issues that really affect each and every one of us, okay? Um, Carla and I have uh, five children, 
our youngest is named Joel, uh, and Joel is, he's adopted, he's uh, an incredible young man, and he is currently in, like, I don't, if you don't know this, like, little kids, they get obsessive about things, they just start to, like, they can't think about anything else, okay, and Joel is currently obsessive about animals, there's not a day that goes by when I don't walk in the door, and probably, like, one of the first things that Joel says to me is, Dad, what do venomous snakes do? You know, or Dad, how can a hippo walk? Like, he just, he, he wants to know all of this stuff, okay? He's just curious, and it's just, like, all he thinks about all the time. And so, uh, for Christmas last year, we got him this book, the Smithsonian Guide, uh, the Animal Book, an encyclopedia of life on Earth. And it's a regular thing that Joel and I will sit down on the couch, and we'll flip it open, and he'll point at an animal, and I'll read about the animal, and we'll, we'll talk about, you know, how they can kill people and stuff like that. Um, and... Uh, and so, you know, one day, I, you know, I was in the table of contents, and I was like, read off some stuff, you know, what do you want to read about, Joel? And he goes, I want to read about apes. And so I turned to the page about apes, and you see gibbons, and apes, and humans. And I, I, I was a little taken aback by that. Um, you know, I was a little, a little bit surprised. Um, do we deserve, I thought, to be listed in a book about animals? And the answer to that is yes. We are animals. You're an animal. Each and every one of you. Um, We do deserve to be, in one sense, yes, of course. We, like every other being, are created. We are dependent. We are made by the maker. But this little thing of seeing humans in a book about animals is like the, the superficial outer layer of a giant ball of confusion about the nature of humanity in this world. Our culture has no idea what to do with humanity, okay? We don't know if we love ourselves or we would be better off extinct, okay? The Bible, however, is incredibly clear about the nature of humanity. From the first chapter, Genesis 1, it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We bear the very image of God, according to the Bible. And this idea is all throughout the scriptures, as I hope to show you this morning. Uh, but the question is, what does that mean? Okay, what, what does it mean that we bear the image of God? And, and in light of that question, which is a very natural question, I want to say one thing. First, there are many, many books written about this, okay? We're going to have one sermon about it. So I'm not going to, this is not comprehensive about this doctrine, okay? But I want to give you what I think is a helpful purpose statement about what this means, that we bear the image of God. It's in your bulletins. It's on the screen. It's this. Humans are uniquely created to reflect and represent God to the rest of creation. We have distinct moral responsibility, spiritual discernment, intellectual capacity, and eternality that is not shared with any other created being. We have moral responsibility, okay? None of the animals in Joel's book are ever going to experience shame for the wrong things that they have done. Your dog might act like he's feeling shame, 
but your dog is not actually feeling shame. He's just responding to the dynamics of living in your house, okay? We have spiritual discernment, okay? None of these animals, a hippo is never going to pray for the salvation of other hippos, whether spiritual or physical, okay? It's just not going to happen. They're not going to seek God's will for their lives. They're not going to lay awake at night wondering what's the meaning of it all. It's not there. We have an intellectual capacity that is off the charts, Okay, I, we had a dog growing up, Cassidy, as in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And we trained Cassidy to fetch the paper. And I thought it was the most hilarious and incredible and cliche thing that you could train a dog to do. But we did it. And it was so awesome to be like, Cassidy, go get the paper. And you watch this dog go and fetch the paper. I can tell my four-year-old son, Joel, I can say, Joel, go to the garage, get me the orange bucket that's next to the shelf and bring it to me. He's maybe never seen the bucket. He's maybe never even been in our garage. He has, but pretend he hadn't, okay? He's got a capacity that is off the charts. I mean, the amount of imagination and language and understanding and cognition is unmatched in all of creation, okay? And, and last, we have eternality or immortality, okay? We're not immortal. Don't go run in traffic in that sense. But what the Bible makes very clear is that we will continue on even after death, and that is unique to us. That's part of bearing this image of God. As C.S. Lewis says, you have never met a mere mortal. Because we all live on after this life. We bear the image of God. That's why Psalm 8, as Lucas read, says this. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly being. So we're not as flashy as the angels, the psalmist is saying. Yet you've crowned him with glory and honor. You cannot escape the fact, we cannot escape the fact that we have value. And not just value in comparison to everything around us, but value to God. We have the most value in all creation. We are the pinnacle of God's creation, and thereby we are loved by God in a way that does not apply to any other created thing. And then one question that's asked then is, if this is true, if we bear this image at what point, it's a very pertinent question for our conversation today, at what point do we receive this image? At what point do we start to bear the image of God? Again, as Lucas read, Psalm 139, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's room. Even then, you see the creator's, the maker's intentionality in working. Verse 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. From inside the womb of a mother, this image of God persists. From the very moments, first moments of our existence, the psalm says that every one of our days is written by God. Do you see that? From unformed substance, we are what we are. God's most loved and most known creation. We bear the image of God from the moment of our conception, and we bear it forever. Now, this is a concept that the Bible sees incredibly clearly. 
I mean, it's just all over. It's woven through the pages of God's work. It could, be, it could be very easily understood that the entirety of the redemptive story, the whole point of the whole Bible, is all because of this truth, that we bear the image of God. God loves humanity who bears his image, and therefore, humanity is worth saving. Unlike anything else, God didn't die for any of these animals. God didn't put on flesh and dwell among us for anything other in creation than his image bearers. You can't get around the notion in the Bible that we have worth to God. And in a sense, this this concept just is in the scriptures. It's, It's all throughout. It's assumed. It's ubiquitous, okay? It's also, by the way, assumed throughout human history by and large. Okay, it's, it's rare to find exceptions. Occasionally, there's confusion, but it's a rare person throughout history that when pressed would not choose the value of human life over the value of any other created thing. Humanity was created by God, and as a result, God said, it is very good. But, as you probably know, the Bible says that th- things didn't stay that way. So that's another question, that that humanity rejected relationship with God and in doing so inherited sin also from the moment of conception. And so that four-year-old who can have this incredible capacity to understand language and cognition and whatever else can also have an incredible capacity to throw a terrible fit in the Isle of Target. Okay, Born in sin, from the very moment of our conception, as well. People aren't born neutral. We're not even born leaning towards good. But the question is, what does this inherited sin and inherited image have to do with one another? How do they relate to one another? How does sin affect the image that we bear? The Bible is very clear again that the image is distorted, but it is not even remotely close to lost. Since man has sinned, since humanity has fallen, we are not fully like God. We've lost moral purity. We've, we've had our knowledge corrupted by falsehood and misunderstanding. Our, our relationships in the world around us are governed by selfishness rather than love, but we are still like God, and we still represent God, and we still have moral responsibility and spiritual discernment and intellectual capability and immortality just not as fully as we could. Now, all of that maybe feels very theological, very heady. Um, And like I said, people have written tomes about this, but let me just get you to one of the practical implications of this truth. All humans are worthy of respect and dignity, of care and concern. This image transcends theological opinions and political tribes and nationalities and ethnicities. It transcends even the content of our character. Every single human, no matter what they've done, no matter their background, no matter their economic impact, no matter their age or size or sex or race, every human holds God-given value. And when culture embraces this, we've seen it 
throughout history. We've seen moments when culture embraces this idea that every human holds God-given value. You have seen moments of incredible freedom and liberation from oppression. You have seen hope and progress, justice and beauty and mercy and light have shone forth from holding this doctrine as true. Holding it up has stopped tons of evil that we would otherwise embrace because we're prone to embrace evil. But believing this idea has led to all sorts of light being cast out into the darkness. This doctrine is the foundation for all human flourishing. It is a big deal, in other words. And yet, we live in a culture that does not embrace the image of God. And and what's happening is our culture is pressing in on us, challenging this biblical view of of real reality and saying the last thing you should view, the, the last way that you should view the world is through the lens of the Bible. Okay, so for our purposes today, I want to kind of point us by just giving you a singular statement that we're aimed at showing. Uh, it's this, all of humanity has value and deserves protection and dignity. If all of that is true, if this statement is true, then this doctrine matters most to the least of these. It matters most to those that don't hold power, to those who don't have status or prestige. It matters most to those who are the most vulnerable and the most helpless. And church, there is not a people group in the world that is more vulnerable than the unborn. It's just what's happening. It simply is the truth. They have no power, no rights, and literally no voice. We live in a state where a wolf has greater rights than an unborn baby. The World Health Organization, which is a secular, pro-choice organization, publishes on their website, you can go look yourself, the statistic that every year, worldwide, there are 73 million abortions. They're not trying to pad the numbers. In the U.S., It's estimated that for the last 50 years, there has been on average 1 million abortions per year. Currently, that's somewhere around 2,500 abortions every day just in our country. These numbers are staggering. This is easily the most destructive assault on humanity ever. Easily. I know this is not easy to hear. Just let me explain to you some, you don't even need the Bible, okay? I, just this past week, okay, I've been reading and, and listening to a lot of stuff, okay? You don't even need the Bible to show that unborn humans are morally relevant, that they're worthy of care. I listened to a woman who's uh, from a, a, she's an atheistic, secular, pro-life woman. I listened to a 40-minute lecture that she gave, eviscerating any concept That humans, all humans, from the moment of conception are not worthy 
of dignity and care. You can see a fetal heartbeat. You can hear a fetal heartbeat as early as three to five weeks, depending on how it's found. Okay? You can see brain activity in a baby at six weeks. The baby's heart and all his or her other vital organs are fully developed at 10 weeks. There's evidence that the baby can feel and respond to and be fearful of pain at 15 weeks. By 17 weeks, that baby in the mother's womb, that baby's heart has beaten around 20 million times. And from the moment of fertilization, this is a new human. Okay? Different DNA, different blood type, unique organs that all response that all belong to this being. Okay? It's undoubtable biological fact. That from the moment of conception, it is a new being. I can't believe this has to be said in our culture, but the baby that's in a mother's womb is not a part of the woman's body. It's like if you take it out of this argument, it's not even questioned. It's in a million biology textbooks. Okay, it's so clear. And there's a shocking hypocrisy that comes with this whole thing. Okay, the rallying cry. My body, my choice. Okay, there are tons of laws that prohibit you from doing whatever you want with your body. If you're an employee in a restaurant, you can't go back to work after washing your hands, right? We've all seen the sign. It seems like a silly thing, but you don't get to choose what you do with your body at all times. It's all over the place. And on top of that, there's no consideration in this whole debate given to the other body the baby's body. That same page on the World Health Organization, their website, about 73 million abortions worldwide every year. This this stat is not meant to make you gasp coming from them. It should, but that's not the point. The point of that stat that they give is to, to make you believe that the ending of the life of a distinct image bearer is normal and acceptable. It's so common. Their whole page is about human rights. And they simultaneously ignore the human rights of half of the humans in this equation. Friends, it's children are being slaughtered because of convenience in most cases. Now, like I said at the beginning, I know this is hard to hear. There are hard situations. There are complications. It's complicated legally. It's complicated relationally. It's complicated personally. Nobody walks up to an abortion clinic without a thousand questions rolling through their mind. Our son, Joel, I said he's adopted. His birth mom has a complicated story. Man. In and out of foster homes her whole life, she aged out. Brutal childhood. And much of this is not her fault. She got pregnant, she got scared that if she had a child, that Joel would be subjected to the same kind of pain that she had been subjected to, knowing that she couldn't provide for him. She knew that she couldn't be what she needed, and one of the most courageous and selfless things she could do was to make a call to an adoption agency. 
And now I've got a son who's obsessed with animals and is one of the brightest points of my whole life. But there was an easier way for her. There was an out for her, okay? It's complicated. There is no doubt about it. There's all sorts of fears and questions and complications that can arise, but I wonder if I could just give a little clarity to some of the hypotheticals that come about in this debate, okay? Do you know what an axiom is? Probably there's a lot of people that know better than me, okay? It's a principle in mathematics or in reason or in, even in philosophy. It's just like a base truth. It's a truth that just exists because it exists, okay? I'll give you an example in mathematics because it's easiest to understand. An axiom in mathematics is this, one equals one. It's just true, okay? Let me give you the axiom in regards to abortion in our culture. We don't kill image bearers, period. So if you take that, that axiom, you go, that's true. I know that that's true. I can hang my hat on that truth. And then you put it on top of whatever complicated situation. What happens is all of the arguments that are for abortion in our culture start to sound crazy. Let me show you. Okay, abortion. It's generally safe for women. 73 million women every year have an abortion. It's generally safe. Okay. So do we kill image bearers? Because it's safe? Foster care is hard. Adoption is expensive. Okay, so to fix that problem, do we kill image bearers? There are cases in which women get pregnant against their will. That's brutal. It's terrible and heinous and wrong. But the answer to that is not to kill image bearers. It's just not. If you don't allow abortion, it's a slippery slope. It'll lead to all sorts of injustice for women. Okay, let's deal with that, but let's not kill image bearers. I mean, it starts to sound insane. And so the question is, if, how do we find light in this darkness? Where can, we, where can we find light? I know this is hard to hear, and here's why. There are, without doubt, In this room, women who have had abortions. I mean, statistically, there is no question that there are women in this room that have had abortions. Statistically, there is no question that there are men in this room who have encouraged women to have abortions. There is no doubt. There are families that have been effective, lives that have been changed, lives that have been lost. I know that some of you have been carrying this burden for a really long time. And I know that even as I share those stats and facts and figures about the, the war and the, the facts about the life of that baby, I know that what's happening is you're shrinking inside. You're wanting to ignore and repress and, and hide and bury it. Okay, listen to me. If that is you, You are not beyond the grace of God. You can't, there is no sin that Jesus cannot pay for. 
You walk around and you bear this shame and guilt and hardship thinking you have to bear it. And the fact of the matter is you can't. It's not yours to carry. If you need evidence that there's grace to be found in Christ, all you have to do is look right here. Look at the heroes of this book. Every single one of them, broken, sinful people. Okay, murderers, thieves, adulterers, liars, prostitutes. The grace of Jesus covers all of it. And your shame has this way of locking you up, thinking that you could never be loved if you let this out, thinking that you have to bear the weight. You cannot bear the weight. Step into the light. If you think that Jesus can't bear the weight of your shame and your sin, friend, you have misunderstood the, the cross of Jesus Christ. You have misunderstood the power of the gospel in your life. There's another group of people in this room. There are some people in this room right now who are shocked that I would proclaim grace to somebody who's had an abortion. You're scandalized. Friend, you have misunderstood the gospel as well. The early church was uncompromising in this ethic. Uncompromising, okay? In Rome, it was not uncommon for babies to just be thrown into the garbage, especially baby girls. And Jesus rose from the dead and the church goes, whoa, there's a radically new ethic by which we can live our lives. This radical grace that has been given to us, we can pour that out into the world around us. And so they start orphanages and they adopt children and they give their money away and they care for, for mothers that are unwed in this kind of situation. They, they care for the poor. They, they have this radical sexual ethic. There's all sorts of things. And do you know what the world saw in that? Hope. Not judgment. Not, oh, we're better than you. It's hope. So if that's you and you're scandalized by the grace of God in this moment, friends, if we're going to have any success in the cause for life in our culture, the church is going to have to be a place of care and not a place of judgment. A group of people that are willing to tell the truth about the image of God and then provide the care for those who are wounded at the rejection of that image that they have lived out, even if they have done it to themselves. This is precisely why Jesus had to die. So that he could cover all of those sins that lead to shame and darkness and hiding and also so that he could provide for us a righteousness that we could never attain on our own. Forgiveness and healing and hope can be found in Jesus. And so I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about how we can go about doing that, how we can be kind of this light in the darkness. Ephesians 5 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. How do you, how do you expose what's happening in the dark? You turn the lights on. 
Okay, there are people all over our world that are trying to turn the lights on of the good news of Jesus, including you all. You guys are so good at this. This is what we do at Mountain View. We, we expose darkness by being the light of the world, okay? And to, to kind of start to think about that, I want to invite a friend up, uh, Jen McLean, who's the director at the Alpha Center. Jen, can you come up here and we'll give her a hand? Um, we asked Jen to be here this morning to just share a little bit of her story and also share a little bit about what happens at the Alpha Center. So thank you for being thank here. You, thank you, thank you. I uh, just want to say I get nervous, so if I don't move a whole lot, that's what's happening. Uh, but first, thank you so much for the invitation, Kevin, Aaron, uh, Mountain View, for the invitation to be with you today to share about the work of the Alpha Center, to share about the ministry um, and the way that we serve our community. Um, I really believe truly that uh, the calling and the distinct privilege of serving at the Alpha Center is an incredible example of how God uses every single part of our story for his purposes, even the pieces of our life that we maybe don't know. Um, And this is true in my life. Uh, I did not know a piece of my life story until I applied for the job at the Alpha Center. I knew that I had been born to a 15-year-old mom and a 17-year-old dad, and and obviously I knew that. My mom is still 15 years older than me. My dad is still 17 years older than me. That piece of my life I knew. What I didn't know was that when my mom discovered that she was pregnant uh, in 1970, before abortion was legal in America, but was legal in Colorado. We've had a long history of abortion uh, protections in our state. She had to have the courage to sit across the table from my grandparents, and I sometimes think about that, and my grandparents were amazing, but I think the courage she had to have, particularly for my papa, who was a protector, and like I could just see that maybe, whew, that would have been stressful. And they decided, I was born out in rural Colorado, they decided to go to the church where my family was attending and ask the pastor for some advice and some support. And what the pastor advised my grandmother to do was to take my mom to Denver and get that taken care of, and he would see them later. And my mom was sitting there and heard this. My grandmother, little feisty, five-foot-tall lady who was normally pretty calm, put her hand on my mom's leg and said to the pastor, well, thanks, we'll see you next Sunday. And they got up and left the church, and as they were leaving, she looked at my mom and said, that's not not an option for you, what he's talking about. You're going to be a mom, and we're going to take care of you. We've got this. And I am here today because of that decision, because my grandparents and my mom said, we can do this. And I will tell you that I didn't, again, I didn't know that until I applied for this job. And I asked mom, how come you never told me that? And she said, did you really need to know? And I, well, I guess not. And she said, but now you need to know. Because that is the reality of so many women who have an abortion decision to make or a life decision to make. They're told that it's not possible that choosing life has too many obstacles, um, creates too many difficulties, is a loss of your dreams, a loss of your freedom. And I can tell you today that I get to live in the blessing of a life choice because of my mom and my grandparents. 
it's, it is worth the decision. For no, for no doubt, uh, my mom experienced at 15 and in a public high school in a very small town, experienced the voices that are so prevalent in our culture, and to some degree so did I, having had such a young mom. That, again, that statement of, you're going to live in poverty, your dreams are gone, you won't amount to much, because this is such a horrendous choice. I would tell you that the reality is nothing farther than the truth of that. Does that make sense? The truth of that is nothing farther than what they were told. I told you I get nervous. My mom graduated from high school on time. I was two. My mom graduated from college, and I was seven. My mom has multiple master's degrees, and it was expected of me that that would be the exact same path. And that is true. And we still walk in the abundance of the blessing of choosing life. We had no shortage of adventures. We had no shortage of love and of joy. We even lived abroad because my mom decided that we needed an experience, and she became a missionary with Young Life, and I got to be her partner. And we worked in high schools in Europe, and it was amazing. I was a high school kid. I didn't know it was doing I just thought it was cool. But we had a very full life. And that choice of blessing because of life is, continues today for us. I will also say that I fully understand, believe, and am confident in the fact that every single person is welcome in the kingdom of God, no matter what our choices are. I have had, because of my position, the privilege of sitting across from women who lead our Awake, which is our after-abortion care group, and hear their decision and then reflecting on how hard the decision towards an abortion was for them and the factors that pushed them in that direction. And they are reconciled to God because they understand that nothing is too far. Nothing. Jesus has taken it all. I also understand that that decision carries so many emotions and so much heartache. However, there is always hope, and our Heavenly Father sees us. I love that he runs towards us when all we have to do is turn and recognize that he is our Savior, and immediately he is with us. I love that. I think it is such a beautiful picture of how he is for us always, all the time, no matter what. It may be today that you are really familiar with the center and maybe have forgotten some of what we do at Alpha Center, or it may be today that you have not ever heard of the Alpha Center. And I just would like to share our mission, our services, and a bit of a story with you. Um, and then invite you to come and see me at the end of the service. The Alpha Center is a Christian medical clinic um, here in Fort Collins, and we serve our community by providing services and education related to sexual health at no cost. So there's no barrier to accessing the services that we provide to anyone in our community. Our medical services include pre-abortion screening, which is a pregnancy test, STD screening, and limited obstetric ultrasound. And we'll see a woman up to six times as she's making a decision because we want to give her space to decide the best thing for her. It's not our job to 
manipulate or coerce her towards something. We want her to make the best decision. But we provide those services, again, at no cost. We also have STD screening for any man or woman in our community, again, at no cost. And we provide professional relationship counseling up to six sessions, again, at no cost. We also offer a holistic, I was going to say a whole bunch of, but that's not what I wrote here, a holistic wraparound set of services to support our women and men who have made parenting decisions or who have injury and hurt in their past. Uh, we have a parenting success program that includes one-on-one -on -one mentoring as well as some small groups for our expectant men and women. Please know that that's for both expectant moms and dads. Neither of them are getting a handbook about how to take care of a baby when the baby comes. And so we provide that support for them. We have material assistance available to meet the needs of, of a new baby and what happens when a baby comes home. We provide labor and delivery classes so that they know what's going to happen when they arrive at the hospital. We have a group that is providing spiritual and emotional care for women who have experienced abortion. That's our AWAKE group. And we also provide care for women who have experienced miscarriage, stillbirth, or early infant loss. Again, all of those services are at no cost. You might wonder or have a concept in your mind of what does a patient or a client of Alpha Center look like? And I would say look at your neighbor because they look an awful lot like us. In fact, an awful lot like us. We serve anybody in our community who has identified that they have a need for our services and that they need care and support. We are committed to providing life-affirming, excellent, dignified, compassionate, medically accurate care to each individual through who walks through our door. I believe that the women and men that we serve have a great deal of courage. It takes a lot to ask for help. I don't know about you, but I am not great at it. It is very hard for me to ask for help, particularly when something that I might be feeling ashamed of or guilty about or I'm feeling really isolated. And these men and women are so courageous and we're honored to provide them places of care and support no matter their, their circumstances which have led to their appointment. I'm going to tell you a story about a young woman. This one may surprise you. Um, she came in for a pregnancy test, and usually when our patients come, they actually are pregnant. And her test was negative, which maybe surprises you. That happens. During her appointment, however, she shared that she had a very difficult relationship with her parents, was struggling with her faith, and was wanting to connect with a different church, maybe try out a few in town. She asked if we could make a couple of references for her, or referrals for her. She asked if we would pray with her. We said yes. We'd be happy to share some church referrals with her and happy to pray with her. We followed up with her about a week later just to see how she was doing because she had shared a lot with us. She told us that she decided to engage with our counselor and was coming in for her first appointment later that week. She shared that she had gone to a church that Sunday one of the ones on the list that we shared. Even though her test was negative, the different services that we provide, such as that pregnancy appointment, the prayers of our supporters, including many of you, 
our follow-up services, our counseling program, and connecting her to outside resources made a significant difference to her as she sought to re-engage with the kingdom of God. She is now a different person because of the support that was provided to her, honestly, because of you. So thank you, Mountain View family, uh, for your continued encouragement, your prayers, your support. It means the world to us. If you'd like to know more about volunteer opportunities or just have questions or want to share a story, I'll be at a table right outside right afterwards and would love to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jen. Expose the darkness. I want you to see the darkness in the world around us. And then I want you to hear very clearly that I think God is calling you, us, to be the light. That's exactly what Jesus means in in Matthew 5 when he says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light To all in the house, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You, Mountain View Community Church, you are the light of the world. You are the means by which Christ's redemption can shine out into the world. The church is meant to be a problem for the darkness, right? Shining the light into the darkness, like when you turn the light on in East Texas and the cockroaches scatter, That's what we're meant to be, into this dark and and angry and hostile world to the image bearers of God. So I want to offer you some action steps, but let me just give you an idea here. If if we're going to be what God calls us to be in this world, they're not going to measure stats. What's going to be understood is like, If the church is doing what the church is supposed to be doing, then what what we'll see is that women, children, families, the marginalized, the poor, image bearers all around us are going to be flourishing. That's a big task. That's a big call. I mean, you you can't wrap your arms around that as, as an individual, but what you can do is one thing, this one intentional thing to step into and bring forth the light. Okay, so let me offer you some action steps. Number one, if you are wrestling with shame, if you want somebody to pray with you, then we'll have people right up front here that you can talk with afterwards. I know it is the most terrifying thing in the world to step out from underneath that shame and guilt. But if you can find the courage to do it, then bringing it into the light, that's the place where shame dies. That's the place where darkness goes away. Okay, so maybe that's that's a step for you. If you don't feel like now's the time, now's not the place, but you do maybe want to share your story with somebody, you can just send an email. You can send it to men at mvcchurch.org or women at mvcchurch.org, depending on your gender. We'll talk about that in two weeks. Um, and we'll help you get connected with somebody that can just hear your story, pray, pray with you, pray for you, encourage you. Um, don't sit in it, though. Don't just let it fester in your life. Um, number two, just prayer. 
tonight. Join us tonight for Cultivate. We have an opportunity tonight where we can be together as the people of God to pray and to worship God, and we're going to be praying specifically in this regard, okay? Praying specifically that we would be the light in the world and that we could come out from under any shame or darkness that we are experiencing. So join us tonight for that. You might be like, I I gotta figure more stuff out here. Uh, we, we actually ordered a bunch of books and resources that are meant to equip you as the people of God, specifically for these three weeks. Um, there's a, the top shelf in the bookstore is all books related to these three weeks of sermons. So if you're like, I need to understand more stuff, go check those out and maybe there's ways you can grow. And then last, we have significant partnerships with organizations that are doing the work in our city of caring for the least of these around us. You'll hear more about those next week, you know, but the main one I want to point you to today is the Office Center that Jen just shared about. Would you consider giving your time giving your money, giving your energy to the cause for life and the work that they are doing. Okay, there is a great need for gospel work in our community, and that's a tangible way that you can do it. So Jen will be out in the commons, right? Straight out those doors, you can talk with her, and, and she'll help you get involved and in, in hear what they're doing. And then if there's other questions that you want to ask, I'd be happy to, to talk with you. You can go to our Connect table to get uh, further information if you need it. Okay, perhaps you've heard the phrase that the, the goal of the pro-life movement is not to make abortion illegal, but to make it unthinkable. The only way that that happens, the only way that that's going to happen in our culture is through the gospel of Jesus and through a, th- a strong understanding that we are God's image bearers. 